We pay a lot of attention to the beginning of John chapter 1. We pay less attention to the end of John chapter 1. Uh, So I want to look at the end of John chapter 1 with you. We're going to look this morning at verses 43 through 51. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Hopefully you're fairly familiar with this chapter. The first 18 verses are this just kind of majestic, masterful prologue introducing us to the Word who was God, the Word who was light and life, the Word who became flesh, the Word who was Jesus the Christ. Um, Following this wonderful prologue, John the author begins his narrative with John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is never called John the Baptist in this gospel. He's more here, John the Witness. And he has proclaimed in verse 29, one of our favorite verses probably, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then following this wonderful pronouncement, verses 35 through 42, some of those disciples of John have now left him behind to follow Jesus. Because that's the whole point of John. It's to witness to the coming Messiah, to point people away from himself to Jesus. And so John preaches, look, look at the one who takes away sin, the sin which is death, therefore look and live. And then that's the whole point of this gospel overall. That's our big context. John the witness at the beginning says, look, behold. John the author says at the end in chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right, so behold, believe, same thing. Behold and live, believe and live. That's the whole point of this book. Life is found only as we behold, believe, and then put ourselves entirely into the hands of the one who is life. So what are you living for? Where are you looking? What are you seeking? Is it Jesus Christ? So Jesus is proclaimed in verses 29 through 34. And in the rest of the chapter, verses 35 through 51, we have the results of the proclamation of Jesus. We have the result of the look of life. And that result is discipleship. Those who savingly see the Savior will then sacrificially follow the Savior. Quite simply, Christians are disciples of Jesus. In verses 35 through 42, we're shown what that looks like as we see the first disciples follow Jesus, they learn of Jesus, they abide, they live with Jesus, they're taught by him and they're with him because they love him and because they delight in him. And then, because they love and delight in Jesus, they have seen that he is the only true savior from sin, they then naturally desire and delight to bring others to Jesus. And then the very same thing happens in the text that we're going to read this morning. So this is simply what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what happens when you look and live, repent, and believe. We've got to move past the simplistic, unbiblical, and deadly idea that one is a Christian. They kind of, you know, believe some things about Jesus. And they kind of, you know, sometimes they attend a church on occasion. No, a Christian is one who follows Jesus, who loves Jesus. Jesus. If you're not following him, uh, if you're not in love with him, then you are not a Christian. So it's really important that we know how you can tell. What does that that look like? What do disciples do? 
That's what we're like, what is the nature of discipleship? That's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to give you three points. Um, I like giving points to help you to listen. It is hard to listen to a long sermon. I listen by taking notes. So if you're a writer, it helps me to listen as well. I'm going to run through three points to kind of just, what does a disciple do based upon this text of these first disciples? Number one, I want us to see and focus on the fact that disciples bring others to Jesus. So we're going to put this in a compa- an, an imperative, a command. You, disciple, bring others to Jesus. That's going to be one of your main applications from this text. John goes out of his way to highlight the unbreakable link between discipleship and evangelism. This is simply what disciples do. So we're going to look at that. Point number one, bring others to Jesus. Point number two, know and love Jesus. I'm going to make that case from the text. And then point number three, man, this is really simple today. Grow in your knowledge and love of the greatness of Jesus. Disciples bring others to Jesus, they know and love Jesus, and then they live a life of growing in their knowledge and love of the greatness of Jesus. Seem simple? Good. Uh, Simple is good. Uh, Our problem is often not a problem of knowledge, but of obedience. Um, So this passage is here to both reveal to us the true nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and at the same time, the true nature of the glory of the person of Jesus. So we're going to see what these first disciples do, and then we're going to try to specifically apply that to ourselves. These are imperatives. Here's what disciples do. Let's go. Let's read the text. Uh, Be asking yourself as we read and go through this, am I following Jesus? Am I living as a disciple of Jesus? I will read for you John chapter 1, picking up in verse 43, stopping in verse 51. Uh, But I encourage you to pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. John writes, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you would bow with me, let's begin first with with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have been abundantly good to us already this morning. Father, it is such a blessing to gather together with your people. It is such a blessing to sing Uh, your praises. We thank you that Christ is ours forevermore because of your abundant kindness and grace. And Father, now as we come to another wonderful demonstration and means of that grace, as we come now to sit under your word, we ask that you would help us. Father, we ask that you would help both the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't even hear. We can't even comprehend. We can't understand. I can't even preach. Father, we are helpless. But with you, um, Father, all things are possible. So, Father, please help me. Help me to be clear. 
Help me to be compelling. Father, help me to be compelling by pointing people to your wonderful son, Jesus Christ. Grab our hearts uh, with his beauty and with his glory. Show us what it means to follow him and then motivate us to do that, um, not with guilt, not with law, uh, not with fear, um, but with a wonderful desire and a wonderful vision of his greatness. Father, we ask that you would show us Christ. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one, disciple, bring others to Jesus. Uh, This is something that we're emphasizing at Woodside this year, right now, because this is something that John is emphasizing uh, throughout his gospel. And we're emphasizing this because I think there are few areas where many of us are more disobedient than in this area. And I speak to you as the the chief of sinners here. I speak to myself uh, when I say these things. I think many of us have just assumed that this is an optional part of being a disciple of Jesus, as if evangelism was kind of an elective that you could take or leave. No, John, at the very beginning of the book, as he gives us the first disciples, the first introduction to what it means to follow Jesus, makes a very clear connection and a very clear affirmation that this is at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Look at verse 43. After his baptism and temptation, Jesus is now heading to Galilee. They've been out. They've been in the wilderness across the Jordan. Now he's coming back in. He's coming home to officially begin his public ministry. And either before or on his way to Galilee, where everything is going to begin, in chapter 2, verse 1, we first see that Jesus found Philip. And this is an important word for our understanding of this section. Look up for a second. We didn't have time to read it. Look up at verse 41. Look at verse 41. Because of the testimony of John the witness, behold the Lamb of God, Andrew, and we think the other disciple here is actually John the author, they have followed Jesus. And what's the next thing they do after they followed Jesus? Verse 41, they found others. It says, he, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Two uses of the same word. Look at our verse 43 again. It says there that Jesus found Philip. That's number three. Look down at verse 45. After Philip was found by Jesus, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. That's four and five, five uses in just a couple of short verses. Again, repetition is an indication to you in the text. Hey, pay attention to this. This is important. I'm repeating this so that you will see it. Um, I've titled this first point, Disciples Bring Others to Jesus, based on verse 42, but we could just as easily title this, Disciples Find Other Disciples. Disciples, by definition, find other disciples. To follow Jesus is in part to find others to follow Jesus. Followers are finders. And the Greek word for found is a good one. I like to throw in a little Greek every now and then to make you think I'm intelligent and to make you know what I'm talking about. Um, But this one you know, actually. You know this word. In the Greek, this word is heurisko. You may not quite hear it, but you know the word today as eureka. This is the word eureka. We probably most associate it with the great California gold rush. A buddy of mine at church is a huge 49ers fan, right? Steve's got his Steelers named because of the city's association with the steel industry. So the 49ers, San Francisco, are named for the association with this gold rush. It was the year of 1849. 
And so they're 49ers. And the cry, Eureka, which literally means I have found it, is associated with them and with gold. In Northern Cali, there's a city named Eureka. It's actually even the state motto. It's just Eureka. That's the motto of California. That's this word. The oldest root of the famous cry goes all the way back to the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes. Uh, He made one of his great discoveries, apparently, as he climbed into a bathtub. And as he climbed into the bathtub, he noticed, parents, you can't put too much water in. I've made this mistake with all my kids. You notice that as you put them into the bathtub, the water then rises. And so he realized, this brilliant mind, that you could figure out the volume of an object by submerging it in water and then measuring how much water was displaced by this body in the water. You could now figure out how big this thing is and thus how much gold you had, actually. And so at the time, apparently this was so big, the story goes, he immediately leaped up out of the bath and went running through uh, the streets of Syracuse naked, shouting, Eureka, I have found it. We don't know if this story is true or not, but uh, the words association with his discovery and this word's use in the gold rush helps to illustrate an important point, I think as Christians, that we often miss about discipleship and evangelism. Archimedes and the 49ers are crying out Eureka because they have found something of great value. You didn't have to compel 49ers to move to Northern California. You didn't have to teach them a class on panning for gold. You didn't have to guilt or manipulate them into going out and looking for gold. Why? Because it's gold, right? Because gold is of great value. And so they desired to pursue the gold. They were overjoyed when they found the gold. And so they just naturally, over, after the overabundance of their happiness, cried out, Eureka! I have found it. And that's exactly what Philip is doing in verse 45. Jesus, the one of infinitely great value, has found Philip. And so Philip immediately found Nathanael and said to him, Eureka, Philip, Nathanael, I've found him. I have found the one of infinitely great value which is the exact same thing that Andrew has previously done up in verse 41. Andrew is the one that goes and gets his brother, Peter. We don't really hear about Andrew anymore. We hear a lot about Peter, but it's because of Andrew. He goes to him in verse 41 and says, Eureka, Simon, we we found him. I have found the Messiah. And church, this is why we evangelize. Or at least this is why we want to evangelize. It's not because we enjoy awkward conversations. I don't like those. It's not because we like potentially offending people by telling them that Jesus is the only way to God and without Jesus, everyone goes to hell. No, it's because by the grace of God, we have beheld the Lamb of God. We have by a work of the Spirit in our heart looked and lived. We have seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We have struck Gold, eternal spiritual gold, the forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting with the God who is life and joy and peace and pleasure forevermore. And so we cry out, Eureka, I have found him. And then we want others to find what we have found. We want people that we love to love the one that has so loved us. We then even increasingly want strangers that we do not know to know the one who has so known us. And that's why we speak. It 
That's why we evangelize. Because this is simply what a disciple does. A disciple brings others to Jesus. A disciple, by the grace of God, found by Jesus, responds by finding others. So evangelism, quite simply, is the cry, Eureka, I have found him. And again, John is going out of his way at the beginning of this book, at the introduction of discipleship, to make it clear to us that this is what disciples do. And every one of the Gospels does this. And the synoptics, it's more specifically with the Jesus, the call, I will make you fishers of men. This is what it means to follow me. And John, we see doing the same thing in different language here with these first disciples. But is this not precisely the very thing that so many of us do not do? And here we're seeing that this is what disciples do. And yet... As disciples of Jesus, maybe it's just me, this is one of the things that I most significantly struggle to do. Uh, Alexander McLaren, uh, the great 19th century Scottish Baptist minister, says in the context of this passage, this man, before he was four and 20 hours a disciple, had made another. Some of you have been disciples for as many years and have never even tried to make one. Ouch, right, that, that hurts. Why do we so struggle with this? Well, again, there are, there are many factors. Uh, personality is one of the ones I use. That's one of my excuses all the time. Well, listen, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm only excited, and I do 90% of my talking in this hour on Sunday mornings. Uh, you, don't, you would think I'm a very different person based upon me in here and me out. So I can be like, listen, I'm an introvert. I don't like people. I don't like talking to people. So, you know, I don't, this doesn't apply to me, right? This is, for the, this is for the extroverts, right? Maybe it's fear of man. Maybe it's this fear that we don't really know what to do or, or how to say it or we're, we're afraid that we won't be able to answer their questions. There's all kinds of different reasons or excuses that we've all given and that we could give. Ultimately, though, I think the main answer has to be, if I'm being honest with myself, the main answer has to be that I or that we do not evangelize ultimately because we do not know God or because we do not know him as much as we should. Uh, we've been so convicted about this over at Woodside, we've actually started a class on, on evangelism uh, today. What time is it? Uh, they are starting in nine minutes, uh, the first class. So you think about it, you can pray for that first class. I'll pick up on week two um, next week. We're going to do some practical training. We need to know some of the how. Um, but the case that we're going to make for the first couple of weeks, and what I'm going to specifically do next week, is that we have to start with verse 29 of our text. We have to start with, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have to start with each one of us seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Until we see him to be the one of infinite value, we will not cry out, Eureka, I have found him. And no one cries out, Eureka, panning in a river when they find some quartz, right? Because it's not worth anything. When you find the gold, you see it, and you've got it, that's when you cry out, oh, I found him. So, and yes, you guys probably also too need to learn specifically about the how of evangelism like I do, but you won't get very far until you first understand and truly appreciate the person and the work of Jesus. Until you truly know him, until you're captured and compelled by the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ, you will remain hesitant to find others and to bring others to Jesus. Which church is just, it's such a great tragedy. Uh, this, this is the thing that we're here for. 
There's a lot of confusion right now on like, hey, you know, what's the church for? And is it for this? And is it for that? We're going to meet food insecurity. We're going to do that. Well, what's the church? There's all kinds of secondary things that Christians, individuals can do. Jesus tells us what we're here for. It's very clear. We don't get to decide our mission statement or our purpose, right? He says, go and make disciples. That's what you're called to do. How? Teaching them, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. That's not just Pastor uh, Steve's job or, or Mike or, or Caleb. That's every single one of your jobs as a follower of Jesus. It's to make disciples. And it starts by finding others and bringing them to Jesus. So church, this is just what we have to do. This is something that we all need to repent of. This is something that I'm ongoing uh, in the process of repenting of my uh, sin and my apathy and my coldness in this area. We have found the one who is of infinite value. Right? Whatever that thing is that you most love, right? that thing that you most love to talk about, that everyone knows that you uh, love, that you have no problem giving your money to, your time, your attention, your talk to, Jesus is infinitely better and more beautiful and more valuable than that thing. Church, are you bringing others to Jesus? Are you compelled and motivated to do so at all? It starts with seeing and savoring him. And maybe some, maybe next practical baby steps would be simply making sure everyone around you, uh, friends, families, coworkers, uh, knows that you go to church Took me a while to realize that I was discipling and getting to know my people kind of early on. I've kind of realized that a lot of my people who have, again, harder jobs than I do, working out in, in the real world um, among um, non-believers, I kind of started to realize that I think maybe a lot of your coworkers don't actually even know that you're Christians <laughs> um, because you kind of hide this and you don't even want to mess around with it. I, maybe a practical first step is to let them know. <laughs> Talk about what you did this weekend. I listened to an hour-long sermon um, from a text of written 2,000 years ago. What? What's wrong with you? Um, let me talk to you. I, do, do people around you know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you go to church? Maybe it starts with being more intentional and regular and inviting your friends to come to church with you. Bribe them with lunch and then let Caleb tell them about Jesus for you. Listen, it doesn't have to be complicated, but we have to start taking some practical, intentional steps here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because we've got to be convinced that to be a disciple of Jesus is to find others and bring them to Jesus, as Philip here finds Nathaniel. So church, this is what disciples do. And that gets us to point number two. It starts with seeing and savoring him. Number two, disciples know and love Jesus. And sure, pretty obvious, but remember what we just said. We struggle to do point one, in large part because of a struggle to do point two, right? To truly recognize Jesus for who he is, right? These things are directly connected to truly know and love him. We don't evangelize because we don't know God as we should. So disciples know and love Jesus. Go back to verse 45. We haven't yet read all of verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. That's where we stopped. Him who? What does he know about this Jesus? A lot, apparently. Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And pause there. Uh, before we unpack our main point here, we had to take note of this. This should get its own point. This should get its own sermon because this verse is huge. Uh, Gideon just touched on this perfectly from Luke 24. Many of us struggled to read the Old Testament. And we kind of like, ha ha, yeah, you know, numbers is hard. I, you know, we kind of all laugh about it and then none of us read it. Um, 
That's a problem, right? Your Old Testament is about 77% of your Bible. Uh, I'm a reader. I read lots of books. Uh, reading rule number one, always have a book with you. I have a book on there. If I get bored for five minutes, I might start reading it or something. Read. But, I, you know, pick up any book, and you're going to have a hard time understanding it if you only read the last 23% of the book. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, we don't read any other book that way. No, read the whole thing. <laughs> but we often avoid it because the Old Testament is harder. Right? We get the New Testament. We get what it's about. And we struggle a little bit more to understand what the Old Testament is about. Good news. Verse 45 tells us what the Old Testament is about. It tells us that it's about the same thing as the New Testament. Jesus. Philip says, we have found him who Moses in the law. And that generally refers to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy, written by Moses, often called the Penta Five. Took, that's book or scroll, right? The five books. Philip says, we found the one that Moses in those first five Old Testament books wrote about. Who? Not Adam, not Abraham, not Moses. Jesus. Moses, writing about 1,400 years before that moment, was writing about Jesus. And he said, also, that's what the prophets, too, wrote about. And then the phrase, the law and the prophets, kind of put together in the New Testament, was often just used simply to mean the whole thing, right? The whole Hebrew scriptures, our whole Old Testament. Philip says, hey, all those 39 books written about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. So read it accordingly, right? Leviticus has kind of been one of my favorite books lately. It used to be one of the most confusing books. And now I'm really starting to love it and studying it more specifically. Read Levit Leviticus in light of the fact that it's ultimately about Jesus. And it just kind of takes on this whole new light. Read the Old Testament as a revelation of Jesus. Yes, there are types and shadows and rituals and ceremonies and laws and persons, but ultimately all of it pointing forward to him. Again, maybe just Philip was wrong here. Maybe he was mistaken. Well, if you look ahead to chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus himself will say, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Again, Jesus himself says, Moses wrote about me. So, again, we sometimes struggle to get this fact today, but Philip got it 2,000 years ago. He recognized Jesus. He knew him. Disciples of Jesus see and know Jesus. Same thing happened up in verse 41 with Andrew. When he says, Eureka, we have found the Messiah, which just means Christ, John tells us. I mean, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's, it's a title. It is Messiah translated into the Greek. It means the anointed one. Back in verse 20, this delegation from Jerusalem has come to John the witness, asking him this really, really important question at the time. Are you the Christ? Are you the one that the Old Testament is about? And John, of course, says, no, 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 it's not me. But at the time, we see that there were all kinds of different messianic expectations in Israel. Everyone understood it a little bit differently, and everyone was partly wrong. But in the Old Testament, the king of Israel was called the Messiah, an, an anointed one. We're going to see high priests called the Messiah, the anointed one. Prophets sometimes often called anointed ones, Messiah. They were anointed of God. It means they were, they were set apart for a special purpose. All of those pointing forward to this one to come, the Messiah, the expected one, the one prophet, priest, and king who would come in some way to deliver his people. And so Andrew says, oh, we've, we found him. The one that, that one that the whole Old Testament is about, we found him. 
They recognize him. They know him. And it, I think it just comes across pretty clearly, even in the text, they're excited about it. Look at verse 45 again. Philip has found Nathanael, said, we have found the one whom everything is about, the Messiah. But look at the contrast between the first part of what he says and the second part, the one everything is about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's kind of, it's a bit anticlimactic. And Nathanael sees it. Look at his response in verse 46. Uh, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And why all the Nazareth animosity? Uh, we find out that Nathanael is from Cana in chapter 21, verse 2. That's where the next chapter takes place. Uh, Nazareth and Cana were neighboring towns. Uh, maybe this was some sort of local rivalry between the villages. It would be like me saying, can anything good come out of Duke University? Right? Of course not. They're the bad guys. I wore the tie on purpose just for this. this North, I'm from the University of North Carolina. We're the good guys, light colors. They're the dark colors. They're the devils. They're the bad guys. Um, and so we, we beat them. Um, these are, you can say these things up here and not down there. You'll get in trouble. So maybe this is like that. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just a rivalry, right? It's just like a sports team rivalry, right? Here's the Red Sox and the Yankees or Duke um, and North Carolina, whatever. That's possible. Some people think that's what it is. I think more likely it's probably that Nazareth was really just a town of no significance. Right? Philip has just said, hey, we found the one that the whole Old Testament is about. We found Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the whole Old Testament never mentions Nazareth once. It doesn't even show up ever. And it does specifically mention that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So Jesus, Messiah, Old Testament being from Nazareth, these two things don't seem to fit together. Philip is unfazed. He is a disciple. He already knows. Here is what disciples do. It's beautiful, quite simple. Come and see. In church, that's our call. That's our call to everyone. Just, just come and see Jesus. I used to be pretty obsessed with apologetics when I was younger. Right? I was going to convince everyone and win all the arguments and I'm going to be smarter than everybody and I was going to argue them into the kingdom. I, you know, it's, I, that stuff's important. I get it. I don't really care a whole lot about apologetics anymore. I've kind of lost my obsession with apologetics. Um, I've kind of realized simply my job is to bring people into contact with Jesus. That's the only thing that happens, right? That's the only thing that works. It's the spirit working through contact with Jesus, either through the people of Jesus or through the word of Jesus. So I'm just a little bit less concerned to be able to kind of answer all those. So many of those things are just red herrings. Uh, say, come and see. Invite your friends. Hey, come and see Jesus in the corporate worship of his people and the preaching of his word. Or invite people. Hey, come and see Jesus by reading his word with me. Church, that's your most effective evangelism. Can you get and invite non-believers to read God's word with you? This is why we're going through the Gospel of John, so that we can then use John to specifically sit down with non-believers and bring them to Jesus. Come and see, we see him through his word. So are you saying to anyone, come and see? But then we get this strange interaction in verses 47 through 49. I'm gonna probably disappoint you in my take on this. We're shifting the focus now from Philip to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, by the way, never mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels as an apostle, but the apostle Bartholomew, never mentioned in the Gospel of John, is regularly paired with Philip there. So it seems that Nathaniel is Bartholomew. Same person, many times these guys had multiple names. Verse 47, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. All right, now, what does that mean? 
Well, again, we know the Israelites were the people of God, right? So they were the ones to whom the Messiah was initially promised. Nathaniel was one of them, and he's the one in whom there is no deceit or guile or trickery. And why is that what Jesus is, is drawing out? Well, the main point, first of all, let's not miss the main thing. The main point is that Jesus sees him. The main point is that Jesus sees through him. The main point is that Jesus knows Nathaniel. And as we'll see in a second, this exchange takes on more meaning when read in light of verses 50 and 51. In verses 50 and 51, Jesus references Genesis chapter 28 and this infamous story from Jacob's life. Jacob, who was known for and whose name in part means kind of trickster or, or cheater. Jacob, at the beginning, he tricks his brother Esau out of both his birthright and then right after that, also his inheritance. Jacob's kind of a jerk. Um, Jacob, who a few chapters later will meet God and will wrestle with God. And what's the result of that? Jacob, the trickster, will be renamed Israel. No longer Jacob, no longer deceit, no longer trickster, but Israel. And so here Jesus, in the context of a story of Jacob, says to Nathanael that he is an Israelite with no deceit no or trickery. Or in a sense, as some have said, what Jesus is saying is, here is um, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob, in whom there is no trickster. Right? He is, this is one of God's people. This is one of the ones that God has chosen and, and set apart. Um, and look at verse 48. Look at Nathanael's reply. How do you know me? Here's where it gets confusing. Jesus answered him, Oh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I'm like, oh, okay. But look at his response in 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. One of the strongest confessions and professions of the person of Jesus in response to, hey, I saw you under that tree. What just happened? Why such a strong reaction and strong confession? That's a good, it's actually a really good question. And it's hard to say for sure. We just don't know. Paragraphs and paragraphs and pages and pages have been written about this. There's just all kinds of, of speculation of what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. All kind of attempts to draw some sort of deeper meaning to the fig tree and, and to Israel. And maybe he was praying or maybe he was converted or about to be back. We just, we don't know. We just don't know. Right? So, you know, we, we can do no more than conjecture. But that's all right because, this, again, this isn't the point anyways. What Nathaniel was doing under the tree is not the point. So we're not really going to waste our time speculating. The point is Jesus' supernatural, divine knowledge of Nathaniel. Whatever is going on, whatever Jesus knows, is something that a normal person could not have known. So Jesus sees and he knows in a way that no ordinary person could. And Nathaniel sees and knows that. It is his encounter with Jesus and this revelation of the supernatural knowledge of Jesus that leads to his great confession. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The disciple recognizes his master. He recognizes his Lord. He knows him. And yes, as Gideon just said perfectly earlier on, being a disciple is more than just some intellectual knowledge about Jesus. That's important that we get that. But it's not less than that, okay? It starts with that. There is no discipleship. There is no faith, no life without that. Faith is knowledge. It is beholding the Lamb of God and knowing the Lamb of God. It is being able to confess with Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom the whole Old Testament is about, the Son of God and the King of Israel. And so 
this word disciple that we kind of throw, listen, the Bible doesn't really call us Christians. It's more of a pejorative term. I think it's three times in the whole New Testament. It calls us those who are in Christ. That's Paul's favorite terminology. And it calls us disciples. And disciple simply means a student. It's a, a learner. Are you a student of Jesus? Are you a learner of him? I love preaching, so I read every book that I can find on preaching. Some of you are thinking, like, read some more books. <laughs> I will. I, I'm reading one right now. Uh, I love my wife, so I study her, and I learn her 11 years in. And I'm just starting, I think, to figure some things out and to get some things right. So I've still got a long ways to go. I love my four daughters, and so I study them, and I learn them, and I just stare at them, and look at them, and learn what they're like, and w- learn what they love to do, um, and see all the amazing differences that God creates in these four girls that all come uh, for me and my wife. It's amazing, but, but I want to know them better, and I want to know them better and better and better because I love them, and so I learn them. It's just fact. We become students of what we love. Are you a student of Jesus Christ? Disciples know Jesus, and they love Jesus. Do you know what it means that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know what it means that he's the Lamb of God, that he's prophet, priest, and king? Do you understand why he has to be uh, God-made flesh? Do you understand what substitutionary atonement is? What are you doing to grow in your knowledge and love of your Savior? Because point number three, that's what disciples of Jesus do. They grow in their knowledge and love at the greatness of of Jesus. Look now at verses 50 and 51. Nathaniel is rightly impressed by this display of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Look at Jesus' answer. Yeah, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In a sense, Jesus is saying, just wait. Hey, watch this. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's Genesis 28. There's the reference to what we often refer to as Jacob's ladder. Deceitful Jacob is now running for his life because he has uh, tricked his brother again. He's afraid that Esau is going to kill him. He lays down exhausted to sleep with a rock for a pillow, it says. You've got to be exhausted to use a rock uh, for a pillow. And then while he's sleeping, it says that God sends Jacob this dream. And it's a dream of this ladder that's set up down on the earth, but whose top reaches all the way uh, to the heavens. And he sees angels of God going up and going down the ladder. And then we see the Lord, Yahweh, standing above the ladder at the top. And he speaks to Jacob. He reaffirms the promises made to his grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac. And then God says to Jacob, I am with you and will keep you. I will not leave you. What a wonderful promise, uh, church. That's covenant promise right there. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's covenant. I am with you, and I will not leave you. And so Jacob wakes up in the text. It says, Jacob goes on to say, surely Yahweh is in this place. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. Why is Jesus referencing that story? Because, don't forget what we just read in verse 45, Jesus is him of whom Moses wrote. 
Moses wrote Genesis 28. Moses wrote the story of Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the one then whom that story is ultimately about. He is the true reality of which these stairs are merely a shadow. The ladder links heaven and earth. Jesus is saying, I am the one who links heaven and earth. The ladder is the gateway to heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the gateway to heaven. The ladder is Bethel, house, El, God, house of God. Jesus is saying, I am Bethel, the true house of God. Jacob is giving, given this vision of revelation to confirm that God is with him and for him. Jesus is the true and better revelation that confirms that God is with us and for us because Jesus is himself, Emmanuel, God with us. It is in Jesus that God is revealed to us. It is in Jesus that God is with us. It is in Jesus that we have access to God. He is the last words of this amazing first chapter, Son of Man. Last words of the foundational first chapter. The title that Jesus prefers to use for himself, straight out of Daniel 7. It's actually not a title referring to his humanity, but specifically to his divinity. And so this chapter ends... Well, just further revelation of the person and work of Jesus and the promise of more and greater to come. The chapter ends with a title of Jesus. And just kind of step back for a moment and look over the whole of John chapter 1. Let's look at how much we learn of this Jesus in just these first 51 verses. You could do the numbers a bit differently. I came up with at least 10 titles given to Jesus in this first chapter. Look back at it. Look at the first verse. Number one, we see first of all, Jesus is the word, right? That teaches us a lot about who Jesus is, right? You are getting to know me in part uh, through my words, right? This is how we reveal ourselves to each other. This is how we relate. This is how we communicate. Jesus is God's revelation, God's communication, God's relationship with us. He is the word. Second, in that same verse, we also see that this word was God. So Jesus is word and he is God. Down in verse 4, number 3, we see that this Jesus is life. There's no life apart from him. He is itself life, as he is the creator of life. I don't think we often think of Jesus as the creator. He is. He's the one who created all things. Uh, number 4, in verses 4 and 9, we see that he is the light of men. He is the true light. Uh, can't see in the darkness. Um, it's bad. Uh, light is good. Jesus is light. Uh, number five, down in verse 14, for the first time, we see that he is the son. Right, so there's this unity. He's the word who was with God and, and he was God, but there's some sort of distinction. Here we see that he is the son. Number six in verse 17, for the first time, we see that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, number seven in verse 29, we see that he is the Lamb of God. Number eight in verse 38, we see that he is rabbi, which literally just means my great one, but came to basically mean teacher. Number nine, in verse 49, we've already seen Son of God. We just read, He is also now King of Israel. And then in the verse we just read, number 10, verse 51, He is the Son of Man. What's, I mean, what, what's going on here? What is John the author doing? Ten titles in, this, in just 51 verses, and he's just getting started. He's showing us from the beginning how big and glorious and great this Jesus is. It's like a diamond. And John is saying, hey, look at this part of it. Now look at this part of it. And look at this part of it. And as you look, you start to get a bigger picture as you see all these different titles laid out of what's going to be unpacked for the next 21 uh, chapters. John is saying, look. And then Jesus at the end of all this says, 
oh, you will see greater things than these. And you, disciple, will want and long to see greater things than these because disciples grow in their knowledge and love of Jesus. This is one of the main proofs of life. At Ephesians chapter 2, we were all of us dead in our trespasses and sins. Everyone apart from Christ who is life, sin separates. Sin is a rejection of the God who is life. So the logical result and conclusion is that you get death. The wages of sin is death. So everyone apart from Christ is spiritually dead. Uh, If you are here with us this morning and you do not know and love Jesus Christ, then know that the Bible says that you are spiritually dead. You are sitting here right now physically alive, but spiritually dead. And if something is not done about that, the result will be hell, eternal spiritual death. Sin separates us from God. But Ephesians 2 goes on, but then it is God who makes us alive together in Christ. And that's the only thing that can be done about our sin and our deadness. What we're seeing in John 1 is Jesus, the revelation of the God-man, God himself, who comes to take on flesh, to take our place, to perfectly live the perfectly righteous life that you are required to live to be with God. You have to be perfectly righteous to be in relationship with the perfectly righteous God. You're not, and I am not. Um, He doesn't lower the bar. No, and then Jesus comes also to perfectly satisfy the death debt that we owed for our sin by dying in our place so that we could then be forgiven and restored to God for by grace you have been saved through faith. And so the wonderful news of the gospel is that God both requires perfect righteousness from us and then provides perfect righteousness for us through Jesus Christ and his life and death in our place. And so John says throughout this whole book, the application of the whole book of John in every single sermon is basically the same. Believe. That's the purpose of this book. Turn from your sin, repent, and turn to him. Believe. Cannot save yourself by being good. You are not. And by the way, God's standard again is perfection, and you are not. But Jesus is. Right? He comes to live for us and to die for us. And so trust him and live. And in biology, I'm not a science guy, but remember in the classes they talk about the characteristics for life, and some say there's five or six, eight, ten. I don't know who's right. But one of them is always growth. Living things grow. Living people grow. I am struck regularly by how much my physically living daughters are growing. Spiritually living people grow as well. Are you growing in your knowledge of and your love for Jesus? Are you growing in godliness, in holiness? Are you pursuing Jesus through the means that he has provided? His word, through prayer, and through the fellowship with his people. This is what disciples do. Disciples grow. They, by the grace of God, know their Savior, and he is so good and glorious that they long to know more. Are you pursuing Christ? And Let me tell you that he is so worth it. He is infinitely better, an infinitely better use of your time and your attention than social media or whatever entertainment you're giving yourself to or whatever it is, because he's the very thing that you were created for. He is the only infinite object and thus the only one who can satisfy you and fulfill you. Have you tasted and seen that he is good? I'm not asking do you believe some stuff about Jesus. That's important. Have you tasted and seen that he is good? And do you want more? 
Right? Disciples of Jesus are students of Jesus who know and then long to know as much of him as possible. And these disciples know him, they recognize him, something about who he is, so they follow him. And Jesus says to them, and he promises to you as well, you will see greater things than these. Have you had your, your, your eureka moment? Have you had your, oh, I found him. Oh, he's, he's found me. Right? He is the one. Whether you know it or not, he's the one that you're looking for because he is not only the one whom the whole Old Testament is about, but the one whom the whole of reality is about. He is God himself, creator, redeemer, master, and Lord, savior, and friend. Do you know and are you growing in him? We meet Peter for the first time up in verse 42. I'll close with the final words that we have of Peter's from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He closes his masterful second letter with these words. Church, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Because church, this is what disciples do. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Um, if you would bow with me, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the great privilege that it is uh, to get to stand here and preach uh, your word. Uh, may I never take that lightly. Father, I pray that you would now be uh, the focus. I pray that I would uh, decrease um, so that Christ uh, would increase. I pray that you would now, by your spirit, uh, work on our hearts and our minds um, through your word. Um, show us Christ and give us a great love uh, for him. Um, Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for... Um, Pastor Caleb, and for Pastor Steve and, and Mike, and um, how good uh, you have been uh, to them and, and through them, and all that you're doing in the life of this church and, and this upcoming potential merger. Father, we pray that your will would be done. We pray that you would continue to bless uh, this church and grow this church, Father, so that the gospel can go forth mightily uh, from the pulpit of this church and from the people of this church. We pray that you would make this church a family of disciples who find others and who bring others to Jesus. I pray that they would see you and that they would grow in their love and affection um, for you and that you would do great things for your kingdom uh, through this church. Uh, we thank you for your goodness to us even this very morning and for helping us now. And we ask and we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.